Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 1, will be in verses 19 through 25 this morning. If you weren't with us last week, our friend and a professor from Bethlehem College and Seminary up in Minneapolis, uh, Andy Nacelli preached for us on the subject of justice, and I'd ask you to bookmark that sermon, listen to it again. If you weren't with us, make sure you give it a listen. That was an important assignment that we gave to him, and he blessed us with clarity and with love in the preaching. Another small update, uh, Chris Grote, whom the elders have hired to come and lead us in worship and to be our worship director under my oversight over the worship services, and he's working his way into the congregation and getting to know our church. So he's here. You might have met him. Keep an eye out for he and Hannah and be sure to greet them and welcome them. Um, we've said just go to church for a month and soak it up and take it in. This is a great church. He knows that. There's also something for just going to church, especially when you've moved across the country and observing how things are done that will help him lead and care for us all the better. He's turned into a good friend. Look forward to him being your friend if he's not one already. Pray for the groats. Well, hearing problems are a real difficulty. I don't know it firsthand. Maybe I'll have hearing problems later. Um, That can happen. I played drums for years without earplugs in. Not sure why I did that. I did it because I like the sound of the drums without the earplugs in. That's why. I have family members with hearing problems, hearing impairments, and they do affect relationships. And they make life hard. Sometimes with a young child, there are behavioral issues of one kind or another, and and it becomes plain in the course of time that it goes back to hearing problems. And in some cases, those issues are able to be addressed. In some cases, they are not. Well, this morning, James addresses a church like ours, and the Holy Spirit through this book addresses our church concerning two spiritual hearing impairments, two spiritual hearing problems. And they do affect relationships of more than one kind, but thankfully, there's much that can be done about them. Let's read together verses 19 through 25. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror For he looks at himself, and then he goes away, and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Well, this is God's word for us this morning. James is a pastor writing to a church with the aim of spiritual wholeness. And even putting spiritual in front of that word wholeness isn't quite right, as we've said, because it's just wholeness. The whole person, inside and out. The speech and the meditations of one's heart. All one coherent, complete whole. Wholeness is what James is after. So the Lord wants more for you than for you to be forgiven of your sins. No small spiritual blessing, but for you to be whole, for you to be in right relationship with him, for you to be in right relationship with yourself and not split in your person, one way on the outside, one way on the inside, double-minded, self-deceived. And for you to be in right relationship with your brothers and sisters and the people around you. And none of that is easy for sinners. None of that comes naturally for sinners. 
But by God's grace, and he is a God who gives grace and gives more grace and gives more grace, as James says, he is about bringing about this spiritual wholeness, this whole wholeness in our lives if he's brought you again from the dead by his spirit. That's very, very encouraging. And that's an important place for us to begin. On a Sunday when we'll be talking most of the time about a very particular sin, a besetting sin, a frustrating sin of anger. If your own anger is not angering to you, it probably is to somebody else. In fact, it is. And if you've given up on your own problem of anger, then it's, it's a lot of trouble for other people, and hopefully they haven't given up on you. Now, they say that marital infidelity can end a marriage in one blow. Well, anger can end any relationship with a thousand cuts. In a way, it's as dangerous but more subtle and more sneaky. We grow to live with it. Um, Our inward sexual lusts may be able to be hidden and even properly controlled so they don't work their way out in action. But anger seems to get out easier. Um, We seem to commit the sin of anger. We sin in our anger more easily. And we sin in our anger typically more publicly so that the people around us and even ourselves get used to just the way that we, the way that we are. Maybe you have a, a temper or maybe you simmer and stew and then you blow. It may look one way or another. But anger is a problem for all of us to some extent and for some of us to a great extent. So this morning we're going to talk about anger. Anger is enigmatic. It's it's confusing. It's often mysterious. Why did I just get angry about that? Why did I say that? Why that angry? Why then? Why with that person? I'm going to try to do some code breaking for us this morning with some meditation on the theme of anger from a variety of of angles, feel a little bit like a Puritan. They were great at lists. I'm going to give you a bunch of lists. If you're usually one to take notes, I might really frustrate you this morning because there are going to be some lists you don't catch. I hang them together with, you know, similar letters or sounds, but you're not going to be able to do it. I almost promise you. So you can listen to the sermon again, or you can bump me in the hall. I'll show you my notes if you can read them. I can't always read my notes. We'll take this in two parts. Um, First, God's word on anger, and then part two, God's word for anger. God's word on anger. We'll handle this in three parts. Three words will work from the bottom of verse 19 to the top of verse 19 with reflections on anger, then speech, then hearing. Anger. How might we describe anger? Define anger. I took a shot at it. Anger is a response of indignation to a real or perceived injustice. Now, for the purposes of this sermon, last week, Andy preached on matters of justice, and the occasion for that sermon is largely public misunderstandings and teachings on the matter of justice that creep into our understanding. And so he gave us a whole biblical theology of justice, and that was very good. In this case, I want to narrow this to interpersonal injustices, like offenses against you, perceived or real. A response of indignation to a real or perceived injustice. Or you could say a response of wrath to a real or perceived wrong. A response of indignation. Great disapproval. Could be a quiet response of indignation or a loud response. Could be 
a simmering and scalding response or an explosive response. Could be aggressive or passive aggressive. You are the worst if that's you. I'm aggressive in my anger, <laughs> the better kind, of course. <laughs> Uh, the more honest, authentic kind. I'm not angry at you. I joke. A response of indignation. To a real injustice. Oh, that can be the case. There are plenty of real injustices that might provoke a response. This church knew them, remember, these readers were persecuted for their faith within the broader community. And that pressure and that trial and various kinds of trials created a response within the church and tempted members of the church to sin against one another. And in sinning against each other, they tempted each other to sin against each other. This church, is, this church was having some trouble. That quarreling was... A hallmark of their life at this time of writing that James was writing to address. I thank God, not a hallmark of our church's life. Nevertheless, we stay on guard in a sermon like this helps us understand how it is we can stay out of that, that terrible, terrible place to find ourselves. Now, James doesn't uh, put the kibosh on all anger. He says, be slow to anger. He puts a governor on it, though. And we should be self-suspicious about our anger. He, he doesn't go into uh, lots of qualifications here about all the obvious times when you might uh, blow your top. Uh, now, it might be understandable for you to get very upset and throw things at somebody in the instance in which, no, it's because anger for us is often uh, misplaced and misdirected and laced with sin. And it doesn't mean we turn off our little justice indicators or feel nothing when we're offended. But James doesn't feel the need to overqualify this. I only point out that he doesn't rule out anger as a category, that it is not an indication that we are sinners in Adam and not a Christian. Anger, even properly, could be a sign that you are a Christian when it's about the right things in the right proportion. But as it concerns our interpersonal relationships and I'll show how this anger is tied in with the other things he's talking about. It's so often a problem, even if it is provoked by a problem someone else has or has with us. A response of indignation to a real injustice. Maybe slow to anger in those instances. Or to a perceived injustice. And of course, this is often the case. Our, our justice antenna is badly broken. Uh, it, is, it is biased. Uh, when you're in a bad mood, do you kind of like it when someone else sins against you? It, you've said some things and you've hung your head and you've been a grump. And then they're a grump back at you or they say something to you or they're a little fed up with how you're acting. And it emboldens you to be angry because, well, of course, look what they, you see? Our, our justice antenna is broken. We don't see what we've been doing to others throughout the day, but we have a filter, a very sensitive radar for what others might do to us. We, have an inv we are invested in the failure of other people against us because it gives us a kind of credit to spend in sin against them. You get this, husbands and wives? I get this. I've said some of the stupidest things to Christy, and not just early in marriage, probably last week, at least in the last month. I think and feel and express straight up insanity, biblically speaking, like looking in the mirror and walking away and forgetting my appearance. And I kind of like it when she sins against me in her way of being angry. It usually didn't come out of nowhere. I take responsibility. I'm not taking responsibility away from her, of course, and that's important to say. 
but I do take responsibility for my contribution to the tone in my house and the provocations that I offer those whom I love. No, our justice antennas are broken badly, and they are biased. And for this reason, our, our anger typically fails one, if not several at a time, of five tests. I told you we've got some codes coming. The test of perspective, our anger typically fails. Maybe it's something you don't like. That doesn't necessarily mean it's an injustice or something that's wrong. It's just something you don't like. Jonathan Edwards, Puritan preacher, resolved never, he said, to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. Put that on your fridge. Family resolution, never to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. In modern English, Edwards resolved to never get angry at an irrational or inanimate object. That makes sense? So for him, and I suppose for me, and for you too, if it's going to be for me, it's for all of us, the inanimate object didn't sin against you, didn't commit an injustice against you, didn't take anything from you. Maybe by circumstance I could come up with some exception, but you know what I'm saying. The remote didn't work. I suppose that is a result of the fall. We can put a man on the... (laughs) I'll try not to be too vulnerable. Inanimate objects are in your life as a part of God's providence. And to the extent that they tee you off, uh, it wasn't personal on the part of the object. You can consider it personal on the part of God. So Edwards makes a good point, doesn't he? Now, he resolved never to get angry at an inanimate object, an irrational being, he called it. I like our new English. I wonder what that would have looked like. I at least know what it looks like for me. It's a matter of perspective. We tend to make some things out to be bigger than they are. So the second test would be that of proportion. Our anger often fails a test of proportion. Remember Jesus' words concerning the log and the speck. Get the log out of your own eye, then you can take the speck out. It doesn't mean that someone else hasn't sinned against you. It doesn't mean there isn't a reason to be angry. But have you considered your own faults? We tend to grade those as smaller and grade our friends' faults as bigger. And we're bad graders in that respect. So our anger often fails a test of perspective. And I offered one illustration, but you could riff on that yourself. Often fails a test of proportion. Often fails the test of purpose. So when I'm angry, even though I know parts of the Bible well enough to know that I'm in sin, I feel very justified and righteous in the anger. It's the nature of the thing. Uh, I might even be able to talk myself into serving a legitimate end with that anger. Like, what I'm trying to do here is, and you don't understand, um, the people in my life are in my way. We think we're serving some legitimate godly end uh, when actually we're just serving ourselves. And so we have to be careful. Our anger often fails that third test of perfect purpose. Or the fourth test of providence, which I've mentioned. Many of our circumstances are very difficult, and we are harmed and hurt in different ways. But have you considered God in your circumstances? And that he is not impotent. He will make things right in the end, 
even if he is not intervening to correct them and bring justice in the moment. That's ultimately good for all of us because he doesn't bring justice on us in the moment, but is patient to leave us room for repentance. But he's in it. He's in it to produce steadfastness in you so that you might be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. And that counts for your various trials, which means all of them. So counsel each other this way and counsel yourself this way. Our anger often fails the test of a consideration of God's providence. It certainly often fails the test of patience. Well, consider how God wanted Moses to think about him when God could put it in a sentence. Moses wanted to see the Lord on the mountain, and he's so glorious, the Lord is, that it wouldn't be possible for Moses to see the Lord and live. So God said, well, I'll pass by you. You'll be in this cleft of a rock. I'll pass by you. And when I've passed, you'll see the the trail of the glory from my backside. And even then, Moses' face would shine in such a way that he needed a veil when he went down the mountain, lest the glory that was in the trail after God passed, which made his face shine, would kill the people. Because they were sinners. It was a dangerous moment, but a revelatory moment in which God was revealing his glory to Moses. He answered Moses' request. The Lord passed before him, and what did he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. Oh, the reason the glory of this God on the face of Moses would put the people to, to an end is because they were grumbling people. They were slow to steadfast love and slow to faithfulness, and they were abounding in anger and grumbling and complaint and unhappiness. Oh, it's good that God isn't like us, right? I'm glad he's not like me. To become a Christian is to discover and to acknowledge that God is not like me and that's a good thing. And that can be good for me in the end because this God, a God of steadfast love and mercy who is slow to anger, has lovingly pursued us and come to us in the person of his son who laid down his life for us, who was raised for us who sends his spirit and who patiently waits on us to turn to him, even as he draws us to himself. Oh, that's a good thing. But that's Exodus 34, 6. And maybe all you need to fight your own anger is that verse. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is our God. Maybe you need to look not in at your anger problem, but up at God who is slow to anger. And you could memorize that. It wouldn't take, wouldn't take too, much, too much work. Our anger often fails the test of patience. Consider the spiritual danger of anger this morning. Here's an easy way to remember the danger of anger. You realize that anger is only one letter short of the word Danger. It's good, isn't it? Don't know where I got that, but it's really good. Danger. Anger. Now, anger is a tremendous spiritual danger. We've all heard of road rage. It's easy to be angry with those we share the road with, and I suppose that could present us with a certain danger. My honk the horn threshold is lower than Christie's, significantly lower than Christie's. I don't honk all the time, but it's lower. 
that it's just as easy to sin against those we share a roof with. And our anger in the context of our home, perhaps with the one we share a bed with, is dangerous. Henry Drummond had this to say about anger. No form of vice, not worldliness, not greed of gold, not drunkenness itself does more to unchristianize society than evil temper. For embittering life, for breaking communities, for destroying the most sacred relationships, for devastating homes, for withering up men and women, for taking the bloom off childhood. What an image. In short, for sheer gratuitous misery-producing power, this influence, anger, stands alone. You can murder your marriage by one blow of infidelity or by a thousand cuts with, with anger. And if that language of murder is a little too strong... Just remember what Jesus said about anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Who insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so in infidelity... And at very levels of various kinds, we say to our spouses, you're not enough for me. And it's a great insult. It does great harm. With our rage, with our uncontrolled anger, our quickness to anger, we say, I don't know how else to put it, I wish you were dead. The end of ungodly anger is murder, you see? I'd just rather you be gone forever. So maybe that'll slow you down if this is a problem for you. It's slowing me down. Slow to anger. Let's work our way up. Second word. Speech. Slow to speak. It's related. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You'll notice in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, in chapter 3, he's going to spend a whole bunch of time on the tongue. It's like a fire. It can burn up your whole life. They're not different topics, they're all together. So in this particular sermon, I've latched onto the subject of anger because that word is unique to this section, but it's not unrelated to his things he's saying about speech elsewhere, and we'll meditate on that word speak here. Speech or words are the oxygen of our anger. Our words heat us up. Have you ever been at a level three anger and then you got to talking and talking and talking and were at a level eight anger? Okay, so the words don't help. They're oxygen on the fire of your anger. Angry words heat the other person up. To them, about them, however they come, wherever they go. Angry words heat up the other person who then, if they give in to the temptation that arises out of their own heart, uh, heats you up. And it's a vicious, deadly cycle, a descent of anger. And Proverbs are very helpful here. A soft answer turns away wrath. Someone being wrathful towards you, sinning against you in that, you don't owe them evil for evil. A soft answer turns away wrath. That's how to deal with a difficult spouse, 
a difficult husband or wife, a difficult friend. It's not to match them. Maybe they need a stern word in the right context. Maybe they need confrontation. But beware of responding evil for evil, even in your own way. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pours out folly, abundance of words. Proverbs 17, 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. I like that one. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Maybe just, you know, play to your own pride and try to look smart when you're angry by not talking so much. Restraining yourself. Anger, speak, now up the ladder here, the word hear, a third word in this verse. It's the point of not speaking, so it's not enough just to stop talking when we're in an argument or when we're angry. We have to actively listen and hear, and this is a hard part of this business. It assumes that our anger is often misplaced based on a misunderstanding of some kind. It assumes that we are vulnerable to misplacing our anger as a response on the wrong person in the wrong proportion. And it's hard because of four ways that we may be taught within our culture at the moment to deal with our anger. Anger is not necessarily these days a vice as the West leaves its Christian roots. There's no sure way to unchristianize a society. It's an okay word, Christianize, if we understand what that means. Where there is a broad public agreement that anger is a problem for us and we should restrain ourselves. That's a good thing for everybody. But instead, there are other ways promoted for dealing with anger in an age of authenticity. Venting is one way that we are taught to deal with our anger, to burn it off with words. And then to find a peace or something on the other side, to have been honest about it when we felt it. That burning anger off with words only burns everything down around us and we may be at peace when our fire is down, but others are left burned if the relationships last at all. We may nurse our anger. And this is the keeping it in, keeping it in, keeping it in. And then explosion. Uh, think volcano rather than incinerating fire. Not letting the sun go down on your anger is not an excuse to vent your anger. And Holding your tongue, which is a good thing and a form of self-control, is not an excuse to talk and say all kinds of cruel and vitriolic and angry things to yourself. It'll eventually come out. So it might just be that you feel like you're not a very angry person. It's just you're really good at storing it all up to blow later. That makes sense? So just know your own Self and your own tendencies. We are not all the same. Thomas Manton, nothing makes room for Satan more than wrath. We may vent our anger, nurse our anger, or medicate it. Alcohol, a drug of one kind or another, hobbies, even work. Staying away from the one who makes us angry. Maybe even pills prescribed, which is not a, a blanket objection to a prescription. But have you considered the medicine that James is offering? Christianity is really hard work. Maybe anger is just going to be really hard work for you. And maybe you need to work at it. Or we may sanitize our anger. And, and by that I mean reframe it, rephrase it. So 
do you get, get upset? I got upset. I, I got frustrated. I was just being emotional. Oh, come on. <laughs> so careful with how you're using words to describe your sins. Because describing them as someone else might doesn't sound so good on your own ears. But it is good to use biblical language. What would James say? Well, I don't even know if got angry is the right way to say it. I was angry, am angry. How about I sinned against you in my anger? Do something productive with our words and talking about our angry anger. So watch how we talk. Well, what is the Bible's prescription for anger? We're on a roll this morning on a could-be tense sermon. So how about this? It's vitamin ear. It's vitamin ear. Okay? Let every person be quick to hear. It really is the Bible's medicine, God's medicine for you that actually works. Not just holding your tongue, but truly listening. And if this is a tough pill to swallow, consider the benefits of this medicine. That listening, listening carefully and well and actively helps you consider the thoughts and perspectives of others that just might be right or might correct you where you are wrong. Listening helps you consider what they're seeing or hearing in order that you might clarify or correct a point of confusion or misunderstanding. And often arguments come down to that. Slowing down in our speech to listen helps us to contemplate how we might wisely respond, which means taking into consideration what they're hearing and how they're feeling. Slowing down in our speech and carefully listening helps gain us credibility and a hearing when it is time to speak. For the individual we're having difficulty with understands that we understand them. A lot is done in good listening. Good listening is an exercise of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And good listening conveys simple respect for the other individual. Well, what happens if we don't take this medicine, if we don't slow down in our speech, and if we don't start listening to one another well? And we might ask the doctor, now you've just prescribed this, but what happens if I don't take it? Because uh, like, we don't really want to take it. Uh, so what happens if we, if we don't take it? Well, there would be adverse effects for letting this matter of anger go. That's for sure. It's not going to produce good relationships. It will, it will sour and sully them and ruin them and yourself in the process. And your anger is likely not productive for whatever end you're seeking anyway. If it feels good in the moment, that may be all it's doing for you, but little else. But here's the best reason to take the medicine and slow down in here, verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's the best reason. Righteousness of God, that is, it doesn't make you a godly person. It doesn't make you uh, more righteous in your character, though it feels like an expression of righteousness. James simply corrects us at that heart of the matter. Our self-righteous indignation does not produce the righteousness of God. Ultimately, our anger is a matter of relationship between us and God. That, of course, affects everybody else. But that's where to begin, and that's where it ends. Well, we've talked a bit about anger with some counsel advice and some pricks along the way. Um, listening, hearing problems. Sometimes you can get to the bottom of it with the right ear doctor. Sometimes they don't quite solve it. There's a different explanation, a deeper explanation, and we need another visit. Let's just get them done in one sitting, shall we?
a second hearing problem may sit underneath our anger. And in this case, we receive God's word for our anger in verses 21 through 25. But be doers of the word, excuse me, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now an illustration, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Well, what do you mean, James? Okay, well, let me give you an illustration. This might be a little embarrassing, but this is what's going on in you. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away, and once he forgets what he was like, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his his doing. Now, this is God's word for our anger, and we need it. I'm not a little surprised, he said, when a man looks at his face in the mirror and goes away. Because... The illustration wouldn't really work if he said when anyone or when a woman looks in the mirror and goes away. But we all know what it's like for a guy to get used to the little, the little bunny in his hair. And he's always got it. I try to make sure my hair's all right for you all in the morning. Um, I care just enough. But we all know some guys who look in the mirror and need to go look in the mirror again. Why'd you even look in the mirror? Looks in the mirror and walks away. What was the point? Just looking at yourself or inspecting yourself then to do something about it? Well, there are three things we can do with God's word that will go a long way to helping us with this matter of anger. And the encouragement for you today at the head of these three things you need to do with God's word is that God is about freeing you from anger. However convicted you were about these things that we've talked about, or however trapped you feel in your own anger, this is not more of a trap. This is not a word of you're stuck and you're bad. It may be you're bad, but there is a God who means to unstick you from your pattern of anger. Our God wants to, intends to free you, if you're his, from anger. Three things to do with your anger. And we get a couple images from James here that he paints for us. If you're really struggling with anger, you might think, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I know the Bible has something to do with it. And you're right about that. And you read the Bible and it doesn't work. Or you hear sermons and it doesn't work. And it might be that you're doing all of that wrong. Because it's possible to hear sermons and to read the Bible and actually to harden your heart against it so that it has a reverse effect of hardening you and your very sins, which is no encouragement to stop reading the Bible, just to get about doing it the right way and now, and hearing the word the right way and now. All right, three things to do. I'll try to make these vivid, as he does. Handles, easy to remember, hopefully. Cracking the code in the first place. Receive God's word as a plant. Therefore, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word is a word from God. It is a word that is implanted inside you, Christian, and it is a life-giving word. Be encouraged. We get all that from receive the implanted word word. I don't believe James is saying here, become a Christian. Although if you have not received Jesus, the true word and his salvation, friend, become a Christian this morning. Your anger may have you in a place of just near certainty. The Lord will condemn you if you meet him, if you were to die today. Maybe it's why you're here to make up for all of your anger and angry words and all the things you've done in the past to people. You carry this guilt through your whole life, given all the anger and sin you've committed in your anger. And all that may be true. And an offer to you is salvation from that guilt and the penalty of that sin and your anger. You can be born again by the living, by the living word. 
James here is writing all of this to those in whom God has implanted his word. Christian, if you're a Christian, the Lord has implanted his word in you, which is to say he's doing and done an internal work in you. You're alive to him. If you're convicted of this sin and you wish to grow out of your anger, that's a sign of his spirit's work in you. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah spoke about Israel in his day, living under the old covenant, those laws, those tablet laws that Moses gave the people, God gave the people through Moses. They were external, written on stone, and they were true and they were good for the people and they couldn't change the hearts of the people. And he promises a day when a new covenant will come, when the Lord will give a new covenant. And that new covenant will involve the Lord writing his law on the hearts of his people, fully forgiving their sins, revealing himself to them in such a way that they know him and he knows them. A closeness of relationship that is unmatched, a full forgiveness of sins that can't compare with the Old Testament sacrificial system, and an inward transformation, which is a part of this glorious gospel and good news of Jesus, that when we come to him by faith, and when The Lord does an inward work in us. He really does change us. So be encouraged and don't resist his inward work. Receive the implanted word. Like a plant. Imagine a plant if you can. Plants grow and God's word is at work to grow in us. It's going to mean we need to get some things out of this soil. The rocks of filthiness and rampant wickedness. See, this passage applies to many other things. I'm directing it right at our anger, though. Get those rocks out. Those detestable sins are interfering with your reception of the word. And get some other things in, like the fertilizer of meekness and humility. And of course, pride is at the root of our inability to receive the word. And maybe at the root of your inability to make any progress on the sin of anger. Pride and the good opinion of others of you. And so you're angry at your spouse or your children for how they make you look and how we make you come off. Or at yourself for how you look and come off before others. Or pride in your high position over others. The first sin, the fear of man, is the, the sin of Saul, which led him to sin in his anger and cruel ways. And that second sin of high position over others would be the sin of Cain, which led him to murder his brother. It's where it all leads. Receive the word as a plant. Respond to the word as a mirror. Oh, he gave us this embarrassing illustration. It's very straightforward. This mirror is a perfect mirror. It's not bent or broken. It tells you exactly who you are in part by showing you exactly who God is, slow to anger. And if he's slow to anger with us, oh, how we ought to be slow to anger with one another. And if as a plant, the word is a life-giving word, then as a mirror, the word is a life-changing word. God is putting up a mirror in front of you, and it's good we don't just have that illustration, right? Because the word isn't just outside of us looking at us and leaving it to us. The word is a mirror showing us who we are, but the word is also inside us at work to transform us from the inside out. So having heard the word this morning and being convicted of anger, don't walk out and forget about what you heard. Maybe this is a sermon to have on repeat. Maybe this is one to bookmark as well. This passage is certainly one for us to bookmark. It's a life changing word. Third, rest in the word as a law of liberty. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Perseveres. Perseveres how? By looking into the law, the law of liberty. Resting in this law We don't usually think of laws and relaxing or resting or or trusting in laws or finding our peace in laws. But can you imagine a world without laws, a civilization without laws? 
No, they bring order and direction. And to the extent that they are good and sound and where they reflect the moral universe as it is, they bring life and flourishing. Law as a word is not restrictive only. It's restrictive to be liberative, if that's a word. It's restricting in order to liberate you. God's word, and he flips the word here to give us another angle on it. The word of God is like a law of liberty. And you look into it, you give yourself to it, and you find freedom from your sin. Not just from the guilt of your sin, but from the sin itself that God has by his word given us a means by which to be transformed. It's liberty to know God. Liberty to know God as the God who is slow to anger and liberty to be, to, to be transformed by that God through his word into people who are slow to anger. It's a law of liberty. We need to hear that right now. It's a freeing word. We'll sing about it before our morning is over. This word about anger this morning is for you a word of freedom. You do not have to be enslaved to your anger any longer. And finally, we rejoice in the promises of the word. He will be blessed in his doing. Don't miss those. They're not throwaway. It's a promise. Hold on to it. Just as sin promises falsely some goal, some end that we believe to our destruction, every promise of the word of God is for our life. So, friends, as we deal with our anger, let us receive God's word as a plant. Let us respond to it as a mirror. Let us rest in it as a law of liberty. And let us rejoice in every promise God gives us in this word. That's the medicine we need this morning. Medicine for angry people like you and me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And we consider that the the songwriters of our Old Testament repeated that over and over again because they needed to repeat it and they needed to hear it and they needed to sing it and so do we. And we thank you that you're You're a God who is slow to anger and you have been patient with us. You have drawn us to yourself and we've come to you. And so we pray that you would continue to work in us so that we may know we are not only free from the penalty of sin, but also free from its power over us. It's enslaving power over us. Not only at this point of sin, of anger, but of every sin. And that we may be free from it indeed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.